If you like sports talk with absolutely no sports talk, then welcome to the Just Not Sports podcast. This is the show where a couple guys who work in sports talk to the people who play and cover sports about anything and everything they like, just not sports. Today, we'll talk to ageless cornerback Charles Tillman about his new book about surviving those awkward middle school years. And we'll also break down the rap stylings of one Shaquille O'Neal with the man who once stepped to him in a video, or more accurately, step to about his waist in a video. That would be the rapper and producer and icon of hip-hop, Def Jeff. I'm your co-host, Brad Burke. I'm a sports marketer in Chicago. Adam is traveling this week. You will hear from him in our interviews coming up in a minute. But on the phone is our well-traveled, Emmy-winning sports producer, Gareth Hughes. Gareth, how are you? I'm doing good, guys. How are you doing? Where in the world are you today, Gareth? Uh, I'm actually back in New York, but last week we uh, hit Tampa, St. Louis, Dallas, and sat in an edit room. So nice to be back home in my own bed. Also joining us in studio, our producer, Mr. Joe Reed. Joe, have we bought you a mic yet? We finally have got me a mic, Brad. This is it's wonderful to be with you here. Mind blown. You can finally hear my voice. It's it's strange. I'm nervous. Mind equals blown for sure. Yeah. So. Well, I was giving Joe a hard time because I said, you should definitely just throw a mic in front of you so we can talk to you. And he got all red and nervous. And he's like, oh, man, I'd remind him we only have like 10 or 15 million listeners for our show. So it's not that big of a deal. I know. There's absolutely no pressure. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's only free to the entire world. I mean, this could peak at 7 billion. So beyond that, it, we'll be fine. <laughs> Speaking of listeners... As you know, based on the Chris Cluey book, who Chris Cluey, the former NFL punter who provides the theme song for our show each week, uh, we call our listeners beautiful, unique sparkle ponies. They are all sparkle ponies to us. And we just want to thank you once again for another week of downloads, subscriptions on iTunes, uh, streams on SoundCloud, comments. And speaking of which, Gareth, I want to continue something we started last week by your recommendation and, and talk about our comment of the week on iTunes. This one is from T. Hollywood. T. Hollywood, the only reviewer of the 30-plus who's written a comment to give us less than the full five stars. T. Hollywood, if you're listening, I just want you to know that you are like the baseball writer who refuses to vote for Greg Maddox because Don Larson didn't get in on the first ballot. Don Larson? Babe Ruth? Come on. Don Larson isn't even in the Hall of Fame. No, that's what I mean. That it's it's like that's like the Bill Conlon or whoever like uh, the protest vote like so so because some random guy didn't get in thirty uh, years yeah, ago. Yeah. I hate baseball writers. So go on. Yeah. All right. That's 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 a fair criticism. T Hollywood, if you're listening, and I know you are, uh, we appreciate the comment, and we're gonna do our damnedest to get that final star. <laughs> I, next year in 2016, my big my big mantra is gonna be get one more star from T Hollywood. Um. Another mantra, get more people on the show. We've had a great roster of athletes and sports figures thus far. Adam threw down the hammer a few weeks ago to people he wanted to have on the show. One was AJ Hawk, who came on the show last week. So we figured let's just keep this rolling and throw the hammer out, call some people out publicly, man. That's what we do. Uh, so, Gareth, who you want to throw the hammer down to? Oh, speaking of keeping things rolling, 
I want to talk to J.R. Smith about hoverboards. I mean, that guy, <laughs> I think, really put the hoverboard on the map. Hey, Joe and Brad, have you guys ever used a hoverboard? Uh, we have. We uh, we actually work with someone who has one in the office as we speak. It didn't go well for me, Gareth. There are four in the office that I am working in, and I love them. I like to refer to myself as a post-walker at this point. <laughs> and I would, I would really like to give, for all the... You see him in rap videos or whatever. I really think J.R. Smith was one of the first people to really publicly bring the hoverboard off of, like, just YouTube or seen in some, you know, sort of obscure rap video and make it mainstream when he did it last year in the 2014 NBA playoffs to the point where this year in 2015, the Cleveland Cavaliers have actually had to institute a no-hoverboard policy. Uh, probably specifically aimed at J.R. Smith. Uh, I also think he's just one of the funniest and most enigmatic people in the NBA, so I'd like to talk to him in general, but specifically about hoverboards and how he brought that into the world. That's my hammer. 2015 was the year of the hoverboard. When you think about all the Back to the Future 2 references – the number of people that are using this now. We Joe and I have someone, as he mentioned, who was in the office, and I tried to get on one, and I failed miserably. And, Joe, let me tell you, I've been around Gareth on a hoverboard. He's not lying. It's like he can float. He just, like, moves around the room like smoke. Well, uh, two things about that. Number one is I just worked on uh, the tees for the Army-Navy football game, and we had to start with something at the beginning of this piece that really screamed 2015. And so it started with people on hoverboards. I'm just going to come right out and say that. <laughs> the other thing is, I will now, I will admit to when I am, I work in a really long office space, and when I am going from one end of the office to the other on the hoverboard, I like to put my hand out in a very like evil genius sort of manner and pretend I'm Magneto and I am drawing myself across the office with the power of my magnetic hands. So, yeah, the hoverboards yeah. are rad. I don't care what anybody says. Hey, Gareth, I have a question about the hoverboard. If you ride it long enough, do you get your virginity back? <laughs> I don't know, but I'm trying, man. <laughs> I'm certainly if you're, trying. If you're on a hoverboard mimicking the X-Men villains, you are certainly trying, my friend. All right, so that's J.R. Smith. J.R. <laughs> right. Smith. Come on the show, talk about hoverboards. My hammer being thrown down, uh, slammed down, thrown down, laid down, laid down. We, uh, you know what? That's a debate for another day. Think about it, digest it, waft it in. Let's think about that. My hammer, um, however you want to lay it down, is to Roger Bennett, one half of the Men in Blazers. I was at BlazerCon, hashtag BlazerCon, a few weeks ago in New York. Loved it. Great spectacle of sports and fandom. I love Roger Bennett, and I love. The fact that on a lot of shows he does throw out World War One era poetry. Really would like to have him come on to our podcast to talk about World War One era poetry. Not much hoverboard talk in that poetry, by the way. So don't get your hopes up, Gareth. <laughs> All right. Um, I would like to think that the Doughboys, if they could have ridden hoverboards out of the trenches and across the fields, would have used them. It's a lot more efficient to hoverboard into a hail of machine gun fire than to just walk into it, as they did on the Somme. Hey, listen, 
World War One needs anything it can to increase casualties. You yeah. Know? <laughs> Amen. Amen. Uh, a model of inefficiency. Uh, Joe, you got a you got a hammer in, in Adam's absence this week. What, who we got? Uh, this I don't know if this is kosher or not, but reading about all that's going on with um, DraftKings, um, this sort of mm-hmm. stuff, just came out. I think yesterday, Pete Rose. I'd like to talk to him about gambling. Brad and I both grew up around Cincinnati during the heyday of Pete Rose and drove to Reds games along Pete Rose Way. I have a lot of feelings about Pete Rose. I think that would be one that I would like to be involved in. Good or yeah. bad. Good or good or bad. I want to know all the essentials. When to hit when to hit on a, on an eighteen and a blackjack table. And uh you know, hey Pete, come on on. And maybe we'll get some of that DraftKings money on the on ads in the show too. Ooh, that'd be great. So speaking of getting to the show, why don't we jump right into it? We got a packed show. For those of you tuning in just to hear Adam's sweet, sweet voice, it's coming. We got interviews with NFL legend Charles Tillman. Let's get to it right after this. Oh, now look here, my boy. It's about to start. Feel it, my boy, with the sound of your heart. Make it go boom, shala, la, la, Our guest today is Charles Tillman, known affectionately throughout the NFL as Peanut. Charles has been one of the best cornerbacks in the league for more than a decade. A two-time Pro Bowler and NFL All-Pro, Tillman became a legend in our hometown of Chicago during his 12 seasons with the Bears. He's now moved on to the Carolina Panthers this season and has helped the team have earned the best record in the NFL through 13 weeks. Perhaps even more importantly, Charles has established himself as one of the best people in the NFL, period. He's won a slew of awards for his off-the-field work, including the Walter Payton NFL Man of the Year Award in 2013. So it's appropriate that today we're not talking just about football, we're talking about rules, and specifically a new book called The Middle School Rules of Charles Tillman, which helps young readers learn all about self-esteem, racism, faith, and family. Charles, thank you for joining the podcast today. How are you? I'm well. Thanks for having me, guys. Of course. Um... I, you know, I'm, I'm looking at like the reviews on Amazon. I'm looking at the comments on Twitter, and I got to tell you, this book has struck a chord um, with people. They they love the message. They love the positivity in it. Can you talk about what the reaction has been like for you um, since you've released it? Yeah, it's. Um, I feel like it's been good. Something just trying to be different, and you know, Sean Jensen and I came out with this book, and really didn't really know what to expect from what parents and what kids were going to didn't really know what they were going to think about it. But thus far, man, kids have been kids and parents. Let me rephrase that. Kids and parents have, uh, they've really just been very, uh, encouraging and and positive responses. You know, some were, Hey man, you know, I, I got bullied and you know, what you did for your cousin was awesome. Um, a lot of what I've really been getting responses on has been the, the racial profiling when I got stopped as a kid and just considering what's been happening on in the United States, you know, Ferguson, New York, Chicago, uh, I mean, you name it. It's, so I've, I've gotten a lot of, gotten a lot of questions about, uh, you know, how I dealt with that as a child. But other than that, man, it's, it's been, it's been awesome. And for those who um, haven't read the book or haven't read the chapter on racial profiling, can you talk a little bit about, your experience and, and the feedback you've offered up to other people who've gone through the same yeah. thing? 
so just a quick insight to that chapter, I, and I forget what chapter it is. Um, my brother and I and a couple of our friends were at a friend's house, and essentially, the longer the shorter, just to sum it all up, somebody comes over and starts yelling at us when we're not even bothering them. We're at our friend's house, and we're in the front of the yard on her property, and then all of a sudden, literally all of a sudden, like two police cars, three police cars, something like that, they all pull up. Hey, let me see your hands. Let me see your hands. Let me get some, you know, they start questioning us on gangs, things like that. And you're just like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Pump your brakes, guys. What what happened? What do we do? Well, you guys said you were, you know, we got a phone call saying you guys were threatening, uh, you know, somebody else. And never, not one time did they question, you know, the other subject that this person came out and started, like, yelling at us. They never questioned that person. We just were, we were guilty by association. You know, and we sat there, and we're going to call your parents, and you guys are in trouble, blah, 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 blah. And I was very, hey, call my mom. I know I didn't do anything wrong. You know, call my mom. You know, we sat on our hands and our knees, or excuse me, we were on our knees with our hands behind our back or behind our head um, for, you know, like 20, 30 minutes just sitting there. And then finally they let us go. We run home, and, you know, I asked my mom, hey, did the cops call you? And she's like, "Uh, no, what happened? What would y'all do? What happened? what happened? And I tell her what happens. And, you know, her, her, her advice was, you know, sometimes in society, you know, people are going to judge you just from the color of your skin. You can't let that affect you. You can't uh, get discouraged from that. But what you can do is just listen to what they're saying, cooperate, comply with their demands or commands. And, um, you know, we can follow a report. You can get a badge number, you know, you're not going to win in that moment. You know, they have all the power then and there. That's fine. Give them their power. Just we'll file a complaint, get a lawyer. And ultimately, I didn't complain. We just kind of chalked it up as, as just a learning experience. Um, but she did tell us, you know, you, you will you will lose that situation in that particular environment because they have all the power, you know. And uh, that's something that I it, it, it stuck with me, and I, I still remember it to this day. With that in mind, I mean, was that – with that memory for you, Charles, was that – important to pass that lesson on and how do you think your your parents are a constant theme in this book so how do you think you've passed that along to your children well I, yeah I, I definitely think that it's i think that you pass it along just from you know i, I have no bad resentment toward cops I, I think they're there's a bad apple in every bunch meaning we have more good cops then we have bad cops. I think out of if I were to take a, a hundred cops, you might get two bad ones. You know, I, I and I'm I'm a huge law enforcement guy. I have a ton of um, ton of police officers friends. Uh, some of my best friends are police officers. I just want to make that clear. But my my no. take on it. Go no. ahead. No, no, I was gonna say your dad. Your dad was a military police officer. I mean that comes through in the book too. Uh, my, my my thing really was just I wanted to, especially with what's been happening, is just let cats know, hey man, it, yeah, it, police officers are gonna, you know, if I were a cop and I'm asking you to do something and then you just start cursing at me, well yeah, I, uh, chances are, you know, why are you cursing to me if I'm just speaking to you as you know as a person and all of a sudden you just blah, 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 mother f this f this f you f you f you f you know like yeah yeah that to me that causes a problem that officer is not gonna be nice to you. 
but just listen to what they're saying, you know, do your part, complain later. And, and I, I, I guess that's really what I've, I've, what I've really tried to do is just um, with all the other interviews that I've done and I've gotten the same question numerous times. And the thing that I try to tell young, young male, young black male adults uh, is just, you got to listen to them in that moment, in that situation, you're not going to make it better. You know what I'm saying? Like you're, mm-hmm. you, you, you will make the situation will turn worse. It'll go zero to a hundred real quick. If you're cursing and yelling and, and, and you're resisting and you're not complying with what that officer tells you to do. The best thing for you to do is just listen, do what they say, file a complaint later, get you a lawyer <laughs> and you'll win in the courtroom. <laughs> and that's really the message that I've been trying to get across since all the um, police shootings and, and, you know, everything within the, uh, in the media and the news, I've, that's really what I've just tried to convey when, and, you know, young, young black adults. Hey, hey, Charles, shifting to the making of the book a little bit, um, how were you first approached with the idea and what surprised you about the process, if anything? Oh, how did I get approached? Well, Sean Jensen and I had, uh, we had brunch one day, lunch, breakfast, lunch, and I don't know. I don't, I don't think it was intentional. We were just kind of, you know, chatting up, catching up on, uh, you know, uh, some talk. I had my daughter with me. She's like pouring sugar and syrup everywhere. So we were trying to be quick <laughs> and it kind of just, it kind of just came up. I had to ask him about how the book went with Brian and he said it was going well. He was, I don't know, later that day he was off to go do an event at a school and it kind of, just, you know, Hey, how would you, you know, how would you feel about it? You know? And I, so yeah, let me think about it and talk to my wife and my kids. Like, hey, what do you guys think about if I come out with a children's book? And they thought it was a great idea. So the next day, I was like, yeah, man, I'm in. Sign me up. Let's do this thing. And the process was actually, um, it was actually pretty easy and fun. You know, I had to go back to, um, I had to go back to Chicago, or not Chicago. I had to go back to Texas, and I got a chance to go back and talk to some of my other teachers, some of my coaches, and Sean went with me and he met me down there and. It really was a great experience just to go back and see all my old friends and old teachers and things like that. We still keep in contact and telling all these stories. I mean, I have a, I don't know. My memory is really good. I remember so much from my childhood and I remember in, in, in great detail, you know, I think that I I was most impressed with that. You know, people talk about concussions in football. Man, I could tell you everything about my childhood in great detail. <laughs> and I think it surprised me, too, is I was able to identify how I felt. You know, when, you know, the whole racial profiling, I, I don't think I could really articulate what I was feeling or what I was going through like that. I couldn't articulate that current, that, that specific emotion or how to explain it. And, you know, as an adult now and writing about it, it was just, I don't know, it was, it was surreal. It was like, wow. And it kind of, it kind of took you back when Sean and I were talking about this part in the book, you know, it, it, it kind of took you back and we, you know, obviously we got off subject and started talking about some other stuff, but it was, yeah, man, it was, it was, a, it was a great experience. Um, I would gladly do another one cause it was, uh, it was really a lot of fun. Hey, uh, Charles, we've talked about race. We've talked about the process of making the book. Can you also talk about the chapter on divorce? I think it's, a, again, just like racial profiling, it's a lot of thing that it's a thing that uh, a lot of young kids 
go through and they, they feel alone. Can you talk through about that experience? Mm-hmm. Yeah, man. Well, divorce, it, like it sucks, man. There's, there's no, there's nothing good about a divorce. Um, you know, and, and I, I think when you have a divorce, there's always, at least for me, I didn't want to have to choose between going with my mom or my dad. And I think, uh, I think that's the part that that's pressure on kids and, one of the main reasons I really wanted to put that chapter in the book was to let kids know, you know, when they see me, Charles Tillman, they probably don't know my parents are divorced, you know, and they think I'm just this big, strong, tough guy, football player. Right. And no, man, my, my, my cat, my parents, they went to, a, they went through a divorce, you know, hopefully there's a kid out there that can identify with how I felt and what they're going through right now. And hopefully how I dealt with it, maybe they can deal with it that way, or maybe it can help them, you know, out of a bad place. And essentially, you know, all I did, you know, my parents, they're arguing. And I remember uh, I'd call my boy, Jason Adams, and he literally would just, he would come over and pick me up. He's like, yeah, they're arguing, huh? And I was like, yeah, man. I would just go stay at his house for the weekend. And that was like my getaway. He was like my brother away from my brother, family away from family. And, you know, Jason Adams and his mom or his his family, they, they, um, they took me in. And to this day, my friend Jason is, uh, you know, probably one of my best friends for, and I'll always remember and, and, and so grateful for, you know, what his family did for me during that time. Uh, Charles, this book deals with a lot of serious topics and we've discussed them and you're a very accomplished man in your career and you've won awards for your play and your off-field activity. And so with the chance to ask you any question, I would like to turn to the time you were called Carlton when you moved back to Chicago, as detailed in the book, based off the Fresh Prince of Bel Air, um, <laughs> can you get into that and what that felt like when you had first moved to a new school, and but also specifically were called Carlton? And did you dance like Carlton? So I didn't dance like Carlton, but it was almost like because I had lived overseas and. I had to talk a certain way in my house. Like, you know, my, my dad didn't let us talk with a lot of slang in the house. You know, we couldn't say like for show and y'all and all, you know, we, we had to talk a certain way. That's one of the rules. Yeah. This is the rule. Yeah. You got, you got to be able to speak a certain way in my house, you know? And so I would say, you know, duck and I, you know, my brother, I would have to say duck and I, he would always correct us on our, how we spoke our grammar. And I remember when I moved to Chicago uh, you know, I was around a lot of uh, black kids, you know, black kids. I, I, I had a, went to a black school, and the first time I spoke, hey, how you guys doing? I'm Charles. You know, I just came from Germany. My dad's in the military, and I was like, whoa, 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 who is Carlton over here? Like, I got made fun of because <laughs> I was like, you, you sound like a white boy. Like, you sound like Carlton. I was like, no, I'm not Carlton. I'm, I'm Charles, and, you know, I'm a black guy too, you know, and it was kind of like, the first Prince of Bel Air, how he moved, you know, they took him from the hood of Philly, West Philly, and brought him out to a more Caucasian community, a white community. And he was looking at us like, why do you sound like a white dude, man? You're a black guy. Why do you sound like a white dude? You know, and it was like, whoa. Like, so I, it was it was weird for me. You guys ever seen uh, Beverly Hills Cop? And, you know, at the, they're, at, they're at Victor Maitland's house, and it was like, and we're not going to fall for the banana in the tailpipe. And Eddie Murphy kind of makes fun of the black dude. He's like, hey, man. You should, uh, it should sound more natural. Like, I'm not falling off and out of my tailpipe. You know, you should be hanging out with this white guy too much. And that's kind of what it was like. I'd hung around so many white people or white kids 
like that I sounded like them. And that's kind of what these kids were making fun of me for is how I spoke because I didn't, I didn't have a slang. I didn't have an accent. I, I was, you know, my words were pronounced, you know, clear and I was very articulate in how I spoke. So they thought they viewed that as being weird. I thought it was all the pastel sweaters, but that's it, man. Everything, every anecdote and story in this has a good lesson to go along with it. So. Oh yeah, yeah. It, well, it was weird because, you know, I'm in a school full of black kids. You know, I'm around my my people, right? But yet I was still the outcast, and I was like, "No, you were the white kid." He's like, "Who are you?" And I was like, and I didn't fit in around all these black people because I spoke a certain way. You know, and that that was weird. I was like, I, I, I didn't like the school. I was ready to go because the, the way I grew up school-wise, like I grew up around black kids, white kids, Mexican kids, Dominican kids, Jewish kids, Arab kids, uh, Samoan kids, Filipinos, um, Panamanians, Germans, uh, black and Koreans. I mean, I grew up around so many different ethnic backgrounds, and that's what I was used to. And then you yep. take me from all this culture being in the military because there's so many different families coming from across the globe and all their kids live and go to school together. And we got along well, you know, like it's like I didn't see color. But when I went to I went to this all black school on the south side, like I was the one I was the outcast. I was the one who didn't fit in. And it was it was it was weird. I, I like I never I never would have thought that in a million years. You know, like, wow, this is great. And it was like, no, I, I was the outcast because I, I talked a certain way. But all my friends, we all spoke the same. We all talked the same. Yeah, Charles, I mean, we're at the end of our time with you today, and we thank you so much for coming on. Um, I just want to let people know, you know, to follow you on Twitter, at Peanut Tillman. Uh, pick up the book, The Middle School Rules of Charles Tillman. It's a great read. Uh, we've all, you know, we've all been <laughs> reading it the last couple of days. It's, 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 it's like you said, it's something that can be an enjoyable read between parents and kids together, which is just very rare in a, um, in a book that's aimed toward younger readers. And then people should also check out your foundation, charlestillman.org, um, to learn more about what you're doing off the field. Appreciate it, guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah, Thank of you. course. Thank you, Charles. Really appreciate it. We're going to take a quick break. When we get back, an in-depth interview with Def Jeff. The one and only. Stay tuned. Our guest today is Def Jeff. Def Jeff bursts onto the scene in the late 1980s with his critically acclaimed album, Just a Poet with Soul. As a solo performer, he was known for blending great beats with enlightened lyrics that established him as one of the more thoughtful and politically minded voices in music. And then after transitioning into his production role, he's written and arranged and produced music for Snoop Dogg, Mary J. Blige, Nas, and many more. And if you're a huge fan of the rap career of Shaquille O'Neal, which Adam and I and Gareth clearly are, then of course you know that Def Jeff collaborated with Shaq on some of his earliest tracks. Today we want to talk to Def Jeff about his amazing career in hip-hop and of course his work with Shaq. So thank you for joining the show. How are you today? Absolutely. I'm awesome, man. Thanks for, uh, thanks for looping me in. There's a lot we're going to get to with you about just the evolution of hip-hop music and um, where the art form is coming and going. But I want to start we're, – we're serious journalists on this show, and I want to start with the most pressing question. In the video oh. for I Know I Got Skills <laughs> by Shaquille O'Neal, there's a moment okay. when someone has to get into Shaq's face and question him about his rhyming skills. 
and it's you. And so Shaquille then and so Shaquille then steps towards you. And Jeff, uh-huh. I was scared for you watching this because he is just like a seven foot, three hundred pound man getting right in your face. And I'm wondering how did how did you deal with this? Uh, it, it, he's super cool, but he's definitely huge. Like standing <laughs> next to him, I was like in the video. I was like, can I just not stand next <laughs> to you in most of the shots? Because I'm already short. You're making me look like super short now. You know what I mean? Oh, I know. I mean, how so, come you, you were had like a starring role on that song? How come you didn't get one of the other guys to like you know do the the, the dirty work and get up in Shaq's grill? I don't know. He's cool. He 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 was very inviting with stuff like that because actually there's a part where we started slam dancing kind of. I don't know if it made the final cut, but I just remember we all were kind of slam dancing. And he was like, man, don't be afraid to get in there and just knock me around and push me around. <laughs> and, um, you know, because he wanted it to be fun, man, because that's one thing I liked about working with him. Everything with him was fun. So my brother, Cassine, he actually ran into Shaq really hard. And after the video, uh, Shaq was like, yeah, your brother has hostility issues. <laughs> <laughs> Says the seven foot guy who used to break backboards. Yeah, right. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> hey, yeah. how did you hook up with Shaq? And when you first met Shaq, how polished was he as a rapper? Um, okay, I'll tell you how we met, and then I'll, tell, and then I'll say, uh, so I had a publishing deal with Chrysalis, and the person who signed me to my publishing deal, his name was Tom Sturgis. I think Tom Sturgis was a friend of Shaq's agent. So Tom Sturgis called me one day and said, hey, do you want to work with Shaquille O'Neal? He's looking for someone to create an intro for his album, you know, and I'm also a DJ. So uh, my publisher was like, you know, do you have all the songs that he needs? Because, you know, a lot of rappers were saying his name in their songs at that time. And I said, yeah, I have everything. I had pretty much everything on vinyl at the time. And I was like, yeah. He said, well, can you meet him at the studio today? And I remember actually being in Culver City. And uh, uh, Marina Del Rey, yeah, eating lunch on like a double date or something. And I remember going, cutting the date short to go grab my equipment to go and meet Shaq at the studio. So that's how we actually hooked up. I was supposed to make an intro for his album, cutting in all of the rappers, you know, like, yeah, Lodeal is the best and whatever everybody was saying at the time. And then when we met, he wasn't really rapping. Uh, like he was, I, I had known the Fushnikin song and I loved him on that because it looked fun. You know, it looked like he was having a good time. And so it was really only supposed to be an intro. So after, and he was familiar with a rapper that I produced named Boss, a female rapper that was on Def Jam. I produced a song for Boss called Deeper and it did really well for her at yeah. Def Jam. And, um, and he was like, hey, I'm a big fan of that song and Boss is dope and all of that. So after we kind of devised this intro, uh, I started playing beats for him. And he was like, who, who did that? I said, I did that. He was like, oh, that's hot. And so that's kind of how we started working on music, you know? Yeah, I mean, he was very young, As to Adam's point. I mean, he was a pretty raw talent, both from his NBA career as well as his rap career, I'm guessing. Like, did he... Did you have to kind of guide him or mold some of his his enthusiasm, um, you know, to get into hip hop, or did you think that he he kind of had a vision for what he wanted to do, and and you just kind of facilitated that? I would love to say that as a producer, I was like, yeah, Shaq, do this, and you'll really blow up. He he was ready made, built in hip hop. Hmm. He loved it. He had fun with it. I think he was a big fan. He was he was a fan of. A lot of people, like he liked really good rappers. I think he was a big fan at the time of um, Fife Dog, you know? That was his guy, you know? And 
And so I think that was his spirit at the time in some ways. He he was kind of an amalgamation of a bunch of rappers that was out, you know, that were out at the time. But I think Fife was like who he keyed in and he really liked his style. He used to talk about Fife a lot. And he was kind of polished. I mean, outside of us, okay, do another take. Okay, do it again. I mean, he wrote his rhymes dis- despite popular belief. I didn't write one lyric for Shaq. I never wrote any rhymes for him. I might have suggested lines. He was really good at if you suggest a line, you can say this line better, but he wrote his rhymes. He came in prepared. And the thing that I really respected and liked about about him, he was pretty young. I, th- I guess he was 20, 20 or something, right? Uh, you got you to help me out with the age because it was 20-something years ago. But he was a young guy, but he was so prepared, you know? And you would think that, okay, this NBA guy, and he's already a millionaire probably at that time. He was never late. He always showed up, and he was always prepared, ready to go, you know? Yeah, I think he he would have been somewhere between, you know, 19 and 21 at that time because he came in the league in 92, I think, as a, after his sophomore year, right, Adam? Correct. Yeah, so, I mean, you're, yeah. yeah, you are talking about a young guy with a lot of money, but Shaq's always been known as someone who had focus for the things he wanted to do. I mean, he was a he was in movies. He he did, um, you know, uh, he's I think probably the only major superstar athlete who has released a platinum album in the in this generation. So and had a stepfather who raised who was uh, for, uh, military and raised him as such. Right. So he he had that incredible discipline, even though his public persona is kind of this goofy, carefree guy. You don't uh, yeah. have this kind of success he did on and off the court without being disciplined. Yeah, he was a combination of goofy, carefree, and uh, focused because he would dance. And I mean, he always showed up to have a good time. And so, you know, you know, we were in the studio and we're cutting, you know, hip hop records and we blowing trees and everything. And we knew on this time for Shaq sessions, it was orange juice and donuts and put all the stuff up. The Shaq's on his way, and you know what I mean. <laughs> we don't want to compromise his, uh, you know, have him in the Enquirer or something. So, and he was just always very. I, I had such a good time working with him. Actually, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. yeah. Back in the day when athletes could still consume donuts and carbs without the the ten nutritionists yelling at them. Um, yeah. So I want you mentioned Shaq dancing because I think this is the crucial point in in recalling and putting into the proper context Shaq's rapping career. There's a moment on I know I got skills at the end where he kind of says out loud, and we talked about it a little bit in the um, an earlier episode of of this show with Shay Serrano who wrote a book on rap. You know he says booty mm-hmm. rappers stay booty, and I I think it's a it's interesting window into that era where you had harder sounds and gangster rap emerging from the West Coast, and Shaq was never going to be that. He was always going to be a, a, a dancer and a guy who was about creating a, a jam for a party. Do you think that he was ever caught between eras where if he had come a little bit earlier, um, before you know that style of music maybe got displaced by some of the harder sounds, that he might have found a, a more long-term ownable sound or am i just way over analyzing one line at the yes, end of a song yes, adam saying yes he's shaking mm-hmm. his head yes well that i remember that being a fun time because he kept doing that ad lib over at the end and he kept saying you know peace to my favorite rappers and he would say rappers and then when we did another take he would say a few other rappers and he was just trying to say fun stuff and i think what he meant by was stay booty like you know you're never going to be good so just Stay booty, and I'm I'm dope on the mic, and I think that was his energy. You know uh, what I mean? Got it. So there's a little bit of overanalyzing, but then there's and, but there's also that was a good question because you know people say lyrics and songs and you know and they they mean something you know because 
even though he was having fun, you know, he kind of was meaning what he was saying and having fun with it. And be, he was serious. He was serious about being cool. You know what I mean? If that makes any sense. Oh, yeah. I mean, I've been thinking about that line for 25 years in one context, and you just totally undercut. It's like you just told me, like, the ending of a book or something, and, like, a, like you know, oh, Moby Dick is interpreted this way, Brad. And I'm like, oh, you're right. <laughs> I've been way overthinking right. that for so long. Well, Jeff, we had Bill Bellamy. Right, right. We had Bill Bellamy on talking about the rock and jock game, and he compared it to the Harlem Globetrotters. Same thing. Destroyed everything for me. Yeah. Right, right. So right. a question about Shaq's style and to build off of what Brad was saying, Shaq comes from uh, New Jersey, also home to uh, rap groups like Naughty by Nature uh, and, and Red Man. His style in terms of topic material seemed to be on par with them to a certain point. So you have the party rap. But then similar to Naughty by Nature and a song like Ghetto Bastard, Shaq did get into yep. deeper issues such as growing up with, with the, without a father. Can, can you explain yep. how kind of his lyrical content transitioned from fun into deeper topics? Well, back then, I mean, if you think about how hip hop was, people had songs about girls and having fun. People had socially conscious songs. I mean, they were all on the same album as well. Even some of those groups you talked about, right. you know, Naughty by Nature had a song called OPP, right? But the name of the album was Ghetto Bastard, right? Am I am I mistaken? Right? You're right. And yeah, and then he had listen, you know, and Tretch had a way of um, he's one of my favorite rappers ever. He had a way of making beautiful melodies and putting such hardcore lyrics over top of them, like everything's gonna be all right. And he's talking about the ghetto, right. you know. So back then, you know, everything was kind of you know, connected in a way. You know what I mean? If that makes any sense? Yeah. 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 Yep. So uh, I'm not sure if I addressed the question, though. Did I, did I address the question? Yeah. Yeah, you did. I, th- I think that, that what you're trying to say is um, it didn't, it wasn't necessarily transition from album to album in terms of his lyrical content, but really trying to have a, a balance, which I assume is something important for any rapper on the album, you got to have some fun. You want some stuff that's going to be played on the radio, but then also some things that uh, kind of become a catharsis for the things you've experienced in your own life. Yeah, I mean, think about it. LL Cool J, even dating way back to then. I mean, even Run DMC. I mean, LL Cool J had I Need Love, but he was also the guy that crushed you like a jelly bean. You know what I mean? Right. Backseat of my Jeep. Remember that one? Yep, there you go. There you go. All that stuff. So, yeah. Yep. That's an interesting point, because shifting away from Shaq and more into the broader spectrum of hip-hop and rap, I do think a little bit back in the day, it, you know, we, Adam and I work in branding, and so we know a little bit about, you know, we, we always hear about, oh, personal brands, and this is my brand, and this is who I am. But I almost feel like you said back in the day, it, there was a little bit more freedom to break out of, you know, a specific mold than to show off different personalities. Do, do you feel like the the... I guess a lot of today's performers are more restrictive by their own choice or again, am I overanalyzing <laughs> the, 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 the culture back then? No, that's a good question. I mean, you know, it seemed like a transition into a point where, you know, if you were talking about the street, then that's all you can really talk about now, right. you know? But then again, but then again, as I think about it, you have guys now like YG, 
and he's a Los Angeles-based rapper, and he makes fun songs. But he's definitely from the hood. He's definitely from the street. So, you know, it's, it's kind of hard to say, man. It really is, because every time I analyze hip-hop and I say this is what it is, I go back in time and I find something that kind of dispels some of the things that I may even think about, because a lot of people say, okay, there are these rules and these unwritten rules. You know, we get into these debates on social media about what hip hop is. And I always ask people to define what hip hop is. It's like, first of all, you hear people say stuff like, oh, well, you're singing and that's not real hip hop. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Everybody was singing back in the day. Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five would do entire singing routine. Right. And they were definitely hip hop, you know? So um, it's kind of like no rules, really. You know, the only thing different about now is so much access. So to where, you know, you'll get to hear thousands of guys where back then you could only hear hundreds because they didn't have a place. You could, they couldn't, it was only billboard. Or if your song didn't get played on the radio, how would they ever hear you? You know, or if you didn't get a video uh, on the box or, you know, um, your own TV rap. So even before that, you know, Ralph McDaniels, you know, various video shows. But now a guy can shoot you his song right away, you know, and it's right. thousands and thousands of artists and there's so much access, you know. Jeff, you said that there's no line, uh, there's really no line where hip hop begins and ends. Um, I think this was a pretty controversial topic a few years ago when Nicki Minaj, she's not the only one, but I think the biggest controversy I can remember is Nicki Minaj did the song Starships, which sounded different than any hip-hop we've ever heard. In fact, you could say that it was uh, electronic dance music done by a hip-hop artist. Is there any any bounds for hip-hop? Is there any way of classifying it, or is that just a place we shouldn't go get into? I think you really... It's really hard to say, man, because... If you think, uh, okay, so Nicki, I remember that controversy on Hot 97 and then they didn't invite her to the show. And right. I remember the controversy around it. But if you think about Planet Rock, Africa Bambada, the Soul Sonic Force, they were doing electronic dance. Yeah. Weren't they? Yeah, you're right. And, and they were regarded as real MCs. I mean, come on, Jazzy J, you know, Globe, all those guys, those were real rappers that came from Africa Bambada's camp. So... I don't know. I guess people want to own it and hold it hostage and say what they think it is. But I try to always stay open because I even when I'm making, you know, comments to myself and I'm thinking about it to myself, I go, well, wait a minute. This happened before, you know. And by the way, Nicki Minaj is one of the greatest female rappers ever. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I, by the way, I agree with you. I just remember that yeah. particular song. It was like it caught hip hop, the hip hop community off guard. Yeah. 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 Only because maybe maybe I don't know some guys are not as educated as they think they are. And that's why I try to stay open and really listen to what people are saying. Because sometimes, you know, at the time you're, you're arguing or maybe debating about it. And then the next day I'll go back and be like, wait a minute, <laughs> you know, I remember this came out and that was regarded as real hip hop. I mean, people said, oh, oh, you can't, you know, you can't make jokes. That's not real hip hop. And then Humpty put on a nose and fucking glasses. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? And and had all the hardcore dudes doing the Humpty. Including Tupac. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. And I, w- I was at their first live show ever. Wow. Uh, Digital Underground. Because, because video company Antipodes 
they did a video for Digital Underground called Do What You Like. Remember that video? Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, and it was this circus of everything going on. And when I saw that video, I said, uh, I told the listeners, well, I want those guys to do my <laughs> video. And I think they ended up doing Dropping Rounds on Drums and Black to the Future, actually, yeah. You mentioned Black to the Future. Yep. And listening to that recently, I still go back to it. And this is another way that, that, that art has changed because back then it was the Wild West of sampling. And I think even off the top of my head, and you, sure. and you, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but you've got everything from Express Yourself to the Steve Miller Band just popping up. I think people could just use shorter, briefer cuts. It was easier to sort of, I guess, punctuate certain verses or or, or notes with with a a sample, whereas now it's so controlled by the corporations. What was it like to have total freedom to literally drop anything into your sound back then? Okay, now, it wasn't total freedom, but I do know what you mean, but here's what it was. Back then, say a lot of people would sample uh slick rick and he would go here we go or to the TikTok, you don't stop like they were regarded as needle drops back then so the publisher wouldn't try to take 50 percent of your copyright you know so if you dropped in a slick rick line off of, you know if you sampled it you know maybe you'd have to pay a few grand but you wouldn't have to give up a percentage of your song it would just be regarded as a needle drop paid for this or if it was a percentage it was a very small percentage you know Now, you'll drop in a Slick Rick line, and that publisher will take 50% of your copyright, 75%, and in a lot of cases, you know, some cases, maybe 100%. So that's very accurate where the corporations have gotten in, and it's more controlled by them, and everybody's really, like, like greed is so rampant, you know? And so the freedom to do it, you just would kind of do it back then and go see what they say, you know? My label in particular would be like, well, let's try it and just see what's going on. You now, guys would be like, well, let's let's figure out what they want before we even use the sample. But I'm like, how do you do that? How do you you have to use it first to see if you want to use it? You you right? You have to incorporate it first because when you clear a sample, you have to send your version, your new work. In many cases, you have to send them the publisher the original song, and you have to send them lyrics, and then they, then the publisher decide if you can use it or not. And back then, you would just record and get your album done, and then say, okay, well, let's see what these people want, let's see what the publishers want, you know. So it's really, in a way, that's kind of kind of put a little damper on the fun, creative part of sampling, you know. Because I always say like. For years, it was this big argument of, like, why don't you guys just make up your own music and why do you sample? And, I mean, I had a conversation with Quincy Jones, like, back in, like, 91, and I was just young and real argumentative. And, like, and he was saying, I didn't really understand why do you guys sample? Why don't you make up your own stuff? And I used to say, hey, well, Pete eventually wrote a book called Jaws, and they turned it into a movie. (laughs) So, I mean, they used something that existed, and then they made a screen adaptation of it. And that's how I looked at sampling. Like, these are the things that influenced us. The rap is the original thing. And the drums you put along with the with the sample becomes the original thing. And the sample is this snapshot of a moment in time that helps you tell your story. Right. And I think in all fairness, even though it's a publisher that owns it, I just think in all fairness that it should be really looked at and, you know, and say, hey, well, you know, let these guys live. Let them play. Remember the bad news bands? Let them play. Like, let's do it, man. Let's have fun and make music, man. You know? I know yeah. that's an old-ass reference, but, you know, I'm oh, an old guy. We love that reference. Yeah, we, yeah. so a lot, a lot has changed with 
hip-hop in general, in terms of athletes as hip-hop artists, um, mm-hmm. you talk about you were with Shaq in the era where probably players had more freedom to express themselves, uh, as particularly in the NBA, where there was no dress code. Uh, then you in, enter Allen Iverson, who um, all, even, even though he had a modest career as a hip-hop artist, as a hip-hop mm-hmm. As a hip hop icon, in terms mm-hmm. of um, of kids seeing a guy dressed like that in the NBA, he was a huge NBA icon, and it probably um, it probably helped with his street credibility in terms of being a hip hop artist. Now the NBA is since Allen Iverson's day and, and some issues that they've had, they've instituted a dress code. Um, and I think that they, mm-hmm. as we, as society is as a whole, they've been much more cognizant about what they let their players say and how they let them appear. Do you think that has hurt sure. athletes' credibility in hip hop? Um, I think the only thing that hurts an athlete's credibility is their ability, uh, is, is their ability. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're good, I, I mean, because I don't really know any of these guys' bars, you know, like, Shaq, I think, and, I, and, I'm, and I'm not saying it's just being biased, I think he was just the best athlete, rapper to do it because he was he seemed very credible at the time. To me, he was because I was introduced to him rapping through the Fuchsnickens. So, mm-hmm. and, and definitely I'll get to your question, but the thing is to me, I remember watching him on NBA Jam or some, some morning show at 7 o'clock. And listen, I'm not even a sports fan. Inside okay? stuff. I'm not a NBA sports inside fan. stuff. Huh? NBA, NBA inside, inside stuff. stuff. Yeah, Adam and I are saying it in unison. Well, he was performing with the Fushnickens? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think, yeah. Okay, so I had a friend, my friend Ron Mack. We're, we're great friends for 20-something years. When, when he found out Shaq was rapping, he said, Jeff, you should send him some beats. I said, Shaq is not looking for me. Like, he's like, he, he, he can get to anybody he wants to. And then so he was telling me, man, you got to get him some beats, man. You, you know, you can help Shaq and all of this. And so he called me one morning and said, are you watching Shaq rapping at 7 in the morning with the Fushinikins? And I was like, I'm watching, man. This is awesome, you know. And then when we when I ended up working with him, I had to call Ron Mack. And I think he says Ron Mack on the song. Ron oh, Mack he does. and my other cousin And Ron. my other cousin yes. Ron. Is that two is yes. that two different guys named Ron that are both his cousin? Or is that Ron and then his, his cousin Ron? Ron Mack is my friend that gotcha. told me to send Shaq beats, and I told him I wouldn't be able to work with Shaq because he has access to anyone he wants, and I ended up working with him, and Ron was at every <laughs> session. Uh, and Ron amazing. was a huge basketball fan as well. So I was I was a little long-winded in saying that to say it was really the Fushnickens to me that when I saw him rapping with the Fushnickens, he was dead serious as a rapper to me. Even though the lyrics were fun, I thought he was dead serious, and that's what gave him credibility to me. You know, shout out to the Foo Snicks because they were they were awesome. I think they did all. They kind of introduced him as a rapper. I don't think any of us would have had the opportunity to work with him in that capacity without him having them endorse him. You know, the Foo Snickers, uh Chip Foo. You know what I mean? Oh, and what's so, up, Doc? Can we rock? I think the, yes, yes. What's up, Doc? Can we rock? So I think the credibility comes from your ability because I don't know any of those guys bars and, you know, no disrespect to Al Namison or Kobe or any of those guys. I just don't know their bars, you know? Yeah. Fair enough. Totally. Shaq had those lyrics that you repeated, you know, and that you, you know, you knew the bars and he wasn't trying to be some street guy. He's from Jersey, but he wasn't trying to be a street guy. And we had a conversation about not rapping about money. You know, it wasn't like we had to convince him to do it, but it's like, you know, he was just there to have fun because I thought if he rapped about money and balling, that he might not get 
a certain amount of credibility because he didn't get that money from rapping. He uh-huh. got it from playing basketball. You see what I'm saying? Absolutely. So we, it's, Hip-hop has always been an era where guys talked about money and wore jewelry and high fashion. I mean, that, that's another thing that kills me. But before I get too long-winded, your question was the credibility. I don't know if it's what the NBA has placed on guys that want to do music. Because it seems like Amani Schumpert, he, he does, he raps, right? Yeah, Amani right, Schumpert definitely raps. He, and he's, he's like one of the few yeah. guys who's actually putting out his own music consistently anymore. It's, it's a lost art in the NBA and in, in most pro sports, in my opinion. Yeah, so I'm sure there are. You, you're working for a corporation, so I'm sure you can't say, you know, everything that's on your mind. But I just, again, I guess the the credibility comes from ability. If you're good, you're just good. I think people accept you. You know, you've worked with a lot of big names, um, you know, throughout many different things. Who's someone left that you you say, hey, I really want to go work with this person um, and, and make music together? Uh, shoot, name, name Kanye West, Jay-Z. Kanye, is, Kanye West is awesome. He, yeah. He's one of the best ever to do it, in my opinion. And again, I think we were talking about like the rules and everything. I get into these debates where people say, hey, high fashion is not a part of hip-hop. What do you mean? We were wearing MCM and Bally's. You know, right. Bally's was like a, some designer from overseas. It's like, you know, and remember the, the, the Eric B. and Rakim Gucci jackets and the leather, you know, What's, what's the guy's name uh, used to make the clothing? Um, uh, it slips in my mind right now. Um, it's not Z Cab. It's going to come to right? me in a second. <laughs> yeah, I can't No, no. no uh, um, the guy from 125th Street, well, Dapper Dan. Wow. Oh, yeah, yeah Dapper Dan. Oh. My, my memory. Dapper Dan was making the leather Gucci. And up to that point, those designers had never had big logos on their clothing. I think hip hop kind of helped that along, but that was high fashion. You know what I mean? It's kind of it's kind of interesting because I think we do it with sports too. You look back nostalgically on the era that you grew up in, and that was when things were real and guys had it right. And what's happening today is not right, and guys have sold out. But as we've seen in both hip hop uh, and basketball through these conversations tonight, uh, that's not necessarily the case. Mhm. Mhm. Yeah. yeah. I mean. These guys are trying to find their way in hip-hop now. So, you know, I don't sweat them too hard. Some of that shit is bullshit, and some of it I can see that they're growing and, you know, you got to give them time. You know what I mean? Like, and let them be who they are. And not everybody's going to listen. I always tell these young guys coming up, because that's another thing. I used to think, like, yo, you got to study the past if you really want to be hot. And, all. and as I get old and think about it, you only need to study who you like. If you want to make a song and you like, you know, just pick a rapper you like. And if you like that rapper, you can set your sights on being as good as that rapper just to get yourself out there. Now, if you want longevity, it probably behooves you to learn the history of hip hop and, you know, and kind of learn what's going on. But I don't even think that anymore. I just think you should be you should emulate who you like. And if who you like only goes back 10 years, then that's who you need to know. And then later on, if you want some longevity, maybe you need to kind of, you know, just do some research and find out who is who. Because some of the guys like the Busters and some of the Buster Rhymes and some of the guys who do have longevity, you can tell that they are students of the game. You know what I mean? Not only uh, are they still doing it, but they have an affinity for who came before them. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And and Jeff, you know, we've reached the end of our time with you, but this has been just such a great conversation. We're we're so glad to get on the phone with you. I think we, it was nice to kind of bring it full circle. We started with Shaq, got into the broader 
um, you know, just ideas around hip hop and rap music. And then, uh, you know, I just, I, we can't thank you enough for, for joining. We love the old, the old music from back in the day with Shaq, but we also love what you've done since then and clearly just continuing to make a mark in hip hop. And we're so appreciative for you to come on and talk to us for a while. Man, thanks so much, man. Uh, I'll become a regular if you want me to be. I love the show. I checked out a few of the links, man, and I'm a fan. So that's great. Uh, I'm always around. Just let me know what's good. If you ever want to chop it up about hip hop, if people can follow you at, at OG Def Jeff, that's where we first started communicating. I encourage everyone listening to go to iTunes. Um, you know, go go download just a put with souls, soul food, some of the early albums. Uh, we love the music. I think it sounds just as good today. So thank you again for joining, and um, we will hopefully talk soon. All right, awesome, guys. Good talking to you. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. All right, thank you to everybody who listened this week. In the words of Chris Kalui, you are the beautiful and unique sparkle ponies who bright up our life. I want to remind everybody to subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes. Three-part process. Uh, follow us on Twitter at JustNotSports. Email us tips, thoughts, or topics, JustNotSports at gmail.com. want to give a shout-out to our guest today, Charles Tillman. Such a joy to talk to. Get his book on Amazon, iTunes, or at bookstores. And Def Jeff. Def Jeff, what can we say? So appreciative you came on to talk about Shaq and talk about hip-hop. What a great interview. You can find his music on iTunes for those of you who are hearing him uh, for the first time or uh, haven't discovered sort of the wonders of old school hip hop. Please go check it out. Download it. It's, it's really worth the listen. I uh, want to give a shout out to Adam and Gareth and Joe Reed, everyone involved with the show. And I know this is when Adam gives a shout out to his boys. Uh, I won't even try to replicate that. Just know, guys, if you're listening, Adam really appreciates all you do. So do we. That's our show for this week. Thank you, everybody. Booty rappers, stay booty. Stay booty. Stay booty. Stay booty. Stay booty.